All right, well, today I get the, the joy, the pleasure, as well as the challenge uh, of preaching to you a text that was really difficult for me uh, this week and trying to prepare for it. Um, it, it is a beautiful, beautiful passage um, that if you remember for the last two weeks, we've been the, the, the high priestly prayer, and Jesus is praying. We're, having, we're getting this inside uh, knowledge of this prayer between Jesus and his Father, and in that he's praying that, you know, that we would know the glory of the Father, uh, that we would uh, know that we are set apart, that we are being sanctified, that we are going to be in the world, not of the world. Do you remember this? Um, and then in today, in this first verse in our passage today, in verse 20, Jesus says in verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone, meaning the disciples, I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, which means you. And so just get this, hours before Jesus' death, he is praying for you. You think about that? I don't pray for them only, I pray for those who will believe. And so he's praying for you. When all the stress in this world could be just filling his mind, his heart is just praying and thinking of you. And I want us to be able to, to hear the comfort that comes in that message because that's what this is. It is a very comforting passage that Jesus prays for you. Even if you don't pray for you, Jesus prays for you. And I just love to see that. Um, and so it is a beautiful passage, but I also think it's a very extremely difficult passage for me to just sit and preach. And why is that? Because I could come up here and sugarcoat everything and have a bunch of Christian lingo, but that's not me. <laughs> um, I think we need to see how hard this actually is. Um, and so I just want us to see that the subject for our time here today is a visible unity, a visible unity. Um, and Jesus hits this word unity about three times in this small little section, and so we really just can't miss it. But ironically, um, though this passage is on unity, there isn't a lot of unity of what the implications of this passage are, right? <laughs> There's a lot of different interpretations of this. Um, and so in this passage, Jesus tells us that our believability as Christians is tied to our unity, that the world would see how tightly woven we are with one another, and then they would believe. And so, is that true today? <laughs> like, we just see how divided we are, and we, yes, we fight for truth, yes, we fight for holiness, but do we fight for unity? And so today, with much trepidation, I want us to look at a visible unity, and this type of unity... I want to look at it in three ways, that it, it challenges you, it costs you, and lastly, it resurrects you. And so challenges you, costs you, and resurrects you. And the way I want to look at that here is that it challenges you. Look at verse 21, that all of them may be one. Verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Verse 23, that they may be brought to complete unity. And so there's really no getting around what Jesus is calling for us here. Jesus is praying for you and me. And, and what's his prayer, dear listener? That we would be one. That we would be in unity with one another. That we would have complete or perfect unity. And if that's not clear enough, let's look at what Paul prays in Ephesians 4. 
He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Oh, I love the, <laughs> the excitement Paul has there. But it is just clear that, that Jesus is beckoning us towards unity. And I, I, just, I hope this passage challenges you. Why? Because I don't know about you, when I read these passages on unity... I feel very torn because I think in, in, in our day today, there, there seems to be many calls for unity. There's, there's many people saying, can we just come together? Can't we just, can't we just come together and, and let bygones be bygones? Like, let's just forget the past and come together. And I mean, I, I, was, at a, I was present at a march that, that some of our church leaders in our community did. It was a unity march. And it was like, okay, let's see what we're going to do here. And in this unity march, it, something about it just didn't sit right. It, it, it felt like a call for unity just fell on deaf ears. It felt hollow. Why does it feel hollow when we have leaders calling for unity like this? And I think it's because we, 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 many times we call for unity. It's a, it's a way to baptize neglect. To say, no, let's just come together, let's just be together, let's, let's, let's make this one union, and we're not going to deal with the repercussions of what we've done. Oh, we enslaved you for 400 years? Let's just come together and unify. Like, oh, what about accountability? Like, what about justice and reparations? And so before we get, thank you, <laughs> before we get to this call to unity, I think our uneasiness, and maybe your uneasiness, is around these we need, we need some disclaimers of what we're not talking about. Because I think otherwise you're just going to tune me out, and I would too, of what we're not talking about. This is not a message that diminishes what you've been through. It's not one that makes light of the anguish that you've cried a million tears over. It's not a message that justifies abuse or abandonment or affairs that are all wrong no matter how they are flipped or framed by others. We have to see that for what that is. This is not a message that demands you excuse the cruelest and most horrific crimes committed against you or those you love. And so what we are saying is, this is not a fake unity. We're not just glossing over it all. We, we, can't, we can't go there. The world can smell your fakeness from a mile away. They can see it. They see it in our movies. <laughs> they see it in some of our music, right? They can smell it. This is not a photo op of us just coming together. That's gross. <laughs> I don't want any part of that. Calls for unity without addressing the underlying issues ultimately led our country to a civil war. I mean, look back at what we had. We had the Missouri Compromise was this compromise of values for the sake of unity. Congress brokered a deal in 1820 to allow slavery in Missouri and Arkansas. Instead of doing the hard work of eradicating this evil, they just let it fester because we wanted to be together. Of course things exploded. Of course it erupted there. One of my favorite passages in the Bible 
is Proverbs 27.6. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And some of y'all are very faithful. (laughs) So faithful. (laughs) Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. To just tell you what you want to hear. I mean, a friend is willing to tell you when you're out of line. Like, let's not just call it unity if we agree on everything. No, we're, we're not... We're not asking you for uniformity, so that's the other thing that unity is not. Unity is not uniformity. We can and should disagree, and I think there is a beauty in having a plurality of opinions. There is a beauty in having a plurality of opinions on a subject so that we can go, we can iron sharpening iron. I'm getting better by what you're arguing, and, I'm, and you're getting better by what we're arguing. Like, that is a beautiful thing. Like, there are There are some things that are essential to the faith that we want to have agreement on, but there is a humility in saying, I don't know it all about this subject, and so I'm just going to hold it loosely. I'll hold it open, and we can have disagreement on that. Like, we are not going to require you to believe every single thing we believe. That's not a church. That's a cult. You, You should have differences of opinions on these things. And when we disagree, because we will, I think that's a sign of health. Because that means we are actively, individually coming to the scriptures and trying to search them to understand what we believe the truths to be here. That we're truly searching the, t- the scriptures and trying to be faithful to the text. And I, I just remember this, this one time I was doing premarital counseling for a couple. And as we were talking about different things in, in marriage to come, I was saying, let's talk about your conflict styles. You know, what is your conflict style? Are you the, are you the shark? Are you, are you the, the turtle? And different, different, maybe you've seen these things, I don't know, uh, different ways of dealing with conflict. And they just looked at me like I was crazy. They were like, conflict? Like, we, we don't fight. And I was like, <laughs> that would be nice. Uh, <laughs> and they're like, no, seriously, we don't fight. I was like, they, 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 were, they were a college couple here, had been together for two years. And I was like, you, you never, ever fight? And they're like, no, we agree on everything. And so then I started to come up with ideas of ways to, to get them to fight. I was like, I don't know. What's your view on politics? Uh, what's, you know, what, what about how many kids and all these things? Like to try to get them to, to discover ways to have this in this, this healthy space here to have this conflict. And they're like, no, we've already agreed. We agree on everything. And I just was like so dumbfounded. Is that possible? And the sad ending of that story is when they did have a small fight, it was nothing big. It was a small disagreement. They just said, yeah, we just decide not to be married anymore. Because they weren't able to have these disagreements. They weren't able to deal with conflict in this healthy way. When it came about, they just, they just ended it. And it was just like... Like, faithful are the wounds of a friend. It's loving to do that. It's loving to speak into these areas. And so, y'all, we want, we want to be faithful in that way. We want to call one another out in a loving way, right? Another thing that this, this type of unity can't be is denominational unity, right? Um, sometimes when we look at and we see 40,000, if not more, different denominations in Christianity, we're going... <laughs> This can't be the way of Jesus. How is this possible? Like, this can't be good. And I'll admit, that doesn't, doesn't seem great. Uh, doesn't look good. However, I don't believe when Jesus is praying this prayer, he's praying 
for there to be mergers in denominations. Like, I don't think when Jesus is praying this prayer, I don't think he's praying, oh, Lord, would you bring First Baptist and Second Baptist together to make the ultimate Baptist? And, and then the world will, will say, yes, Lord. Like, I don't think the, Lord, the, the world looks on that and, and, and it moves the needle on, in terms of what the watching world sees about our unity. I mean, it's, it's as if, like, you walked or you're driving down the highway, think of this maybe 10 years ago, and you saw, you know, KFC and a Taco Bell together, and you're like, <gasps> I mean, you may have been excited, but you'd go, oh, look at God. <laughs> Won't he do it? <laughs> Praise the Lord. Thank you, God. <laughs> like, I don't think mergers is what Jesus is praying for right here um, at all. And so <laughs> I do think there's a beauty in recognizing the, the commonality amongst churches. I think that's why we, I love in the Apostles' Creed when we say, you know, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, and that Catholic would mean universal, that all true churches throughout time, throughout history, that I believe that there is a unity amongst the churches that spans denominations. And I think that's a beautiful thing, but it's a true church. Those who, those who actually follow Jesus and don't just use Christianity as a shield to bludgeon themselves into positions of power, right? And so I, I, it's not just unity with any group. We can't, we can't just assume that. Like there are some people in groups that we should distance ourselves from. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6, what fellowship can light have with darkness? Or what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Right? There, there needs to be a separation there between these groups. It's, it's not okay for us to unite with everything, because unity just can't be the end goal. Like, we don't just shoot for unity amongst anything, because you can be united over almost anything. There are many groups of people that get united over different, different causes. Many people throughout history have been united around different terrible evils in their union, and we would not celebrate that type of unity. And so it's not okay with us to unite with everything. And so what type of unity are we talking about? What is the unity that binds Christians together? And I think this is where we go into this, this different type of unity in our second point. It's a, it's a costly unity. It's a unity that costs you. A, a, any type of beautiful unity is very, very costly. Um, verse 23 says, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me. This is wild. So our, our unity is evangelism to a watching world. How does the world know about Jesus? They look at the way we treat one another. They see our unity. It's a visible unity that the world can observe and it compels them to something greater. They see that and it makes them want to be a part of it. And so how does that happen? I think the four costly things that the world can see that are different about the church are these. The first one is your individuality. It's going to cost you your individuality. Like you can't find unity by yourself. Yes, it's easy to come to conclusions by yourself. What should I do for dinner today? I'll think about that KFC Taco Bell combo. <laughs> I could get bets to both worlds, right? It's easy to come to conclusions in that sense, but you're not actually in unity with anyone. You've come together in this decision with yourself. Unity pulls together groups of people and there's a unity amongst them. And so unity happens 
in community. And so earlier in uh, the, our, the gospel here, Jesus says in chapter 13, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another, then the world will see that and they will know. Like this display of unity is so compelling, it's so unworldly that it's a witness to this watching world of who Jesus is and it only makes sense if Jesus is who he says he is. And that only happens when we want another with each other, when we encourage one another, when we spur one another on, when we pray for one another, when we love one another. That type of unity only happens when we are in community encouraging one another in this way. And it's so difficult in the most privatized country in the world, in the history of the world. We are the most individualized country and most individualized nation in the world in history. That everything is personal. Hey, can I ask you about that? No, it's personal. Everything is personal. And so some of you may have grown up in a small town and you don't, you don't know about that. <laughs> Everyone was in your business. Everyone knew about you. There was expectations of you and you did not like that. But when you moved away, you came to a place where you said, now I can be individualistic. Now I can, I can have my own agenda. I don't have any expectations on me. And part of that's freeing. And the other part of that is just isolating and killing, right? That as you come to a place where no one may know you, you can, you can hide. And so we, we can individualize everything. We can individualize our social feeds, our news feeds, and even what we feed on. We can just hit it on an app and we never have to deal with a human being ever again. Because we're so individualized. But in community, you have to be available for people. You actually have to be available. You have to actually have to wait on somebody. You have to wait for someone to finish their dinner. <laughs> you have to actually sit at the dinner table and wait for that. Like, coming to Jesus is the end of your little private world. Oh, are you saying amen to that? <laughs> because being a Christian means being brought out of your little private world into a community. That's why when the Bible talks about the church, these analogies are that you're brought into a family, that we are brothers and sisters with one another. And brothers and sisters fight, but they also celebrate, right? Or it's, the other analogy is that we are, we are one body. And that, that I need you as much as you need me. Like, I, I can't go without my eyes. I need my eyes. I need you to be my eyes, or whatever the, the analogy may be, that we need one another. And I think we as a church, I mean, community is a, is a hot word that we want to, everyone wants to aspire to, but I think we only want to do it up to a reason, up to a point. We only want to give a tenth of who we are in our communities. And we want, only want people to know only a part of us. You guys know what the, the root word of the word hypocrite is? It comes from the Greek word Hippocrates, which is actor. And so I think church communities in particular are just so prominent with actors who put on some form of unity or some form of, of vulnerability in this community but only to a point. But the rest of it is, I don't really want you to know that part about me. I'm giving you a tenth of who I actually am. I'm giving you my public-facing persona, not actually who I deeply am. And that's where I think we struggle. And so then what we do is we, we may come in here, and maybe this is you, maybe you come in here and you want to get recharged by, by, the, by the sermon or by the music or by the liturgy, and then as soon as the service is over, we bolt out and we wonder, why am I struggling spiritually? I'm faithful to church, 
but have I let anyone in on my heart and to know me deeply? Like, you need us as much as we need you, right? There's this, this like, if you're not here, we miss out. And, if, and if, if, I, if I'm not here in this community, then I'm missing out on you guys. This is, this is the deep part of community here. And so visible unity costs. It's going to cost you your individuality. It's also going to cost you financially too. Yeah, everyone's really loving unity right now. <laughs> the early church was known not because it just expressed this unity emotionally. I send you thoughts and prayers. I'm with you in spirit. No, the early church was known because it expressed this unity with things. It expressed their unity with possessions. In Acts 2, right as the church was being birthed, in Acts 2, right as the church is being birthed, it says here, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Isn't that wild? We think that's just stupid. People don't live that way. Some of you do, and I've heard of these stories. And it's wild and it's beautiful. Like whenever there was need, people were willing to sell their possessions. They're selling their land. Someone gave us land to, to start our house on. Like people do this stuff today. They, they give property away till there was no need left. And this is this radical hospitality, this radical generosity. Is that true of our community with one another? People can tell how we use our money. People can look at us and go, I see what your heart really cares about. They, they can see that, and they can see what you give to. The world can see how your spending reflects your heart, and when they see that, you're willing to give away your land, to give away your property, your possessions, for a brother and sister in need, and they go like, you actually believe this stuff, don't you? It compels them to go, is this real? I doubted before, but you are making it come alive. They love people with their things. Another aspect of that unity costs you, it's going to cost you your partiality. It's going to cost you your partiality. As Mark Damas has said, in an increasingly diverse and painfully polarized and cynical society, it's finding less credible the message of God's love for all people as proclaimed from segregated pulpits and pews. Oh, let me say that again. An increasingly diverse, painfully polarized, and cynical society is finding less credible the message of God's love for all people as proclaimed from segregated pulpits and pews. And so the world sees our partiality and says, you're no different. You're just out for it yourself. Like they, they, they see that and they go, that's what you guys do. I knew that, I knew that about you. And, and we, we planted mosaic intentionally with this in mind. We want to be a place that is different, a place where we worship God by intentionally celebrating different cultures and languages so that we get a fuller picture of the kingdom, that we are better when we, when we come together with one another. No, we've not arrived by any means. We're always having to keep growing this, but it's something that we are intentionally seeking to be, and that means that we will celebrate different cultures and that we will decenter ourselves. And so then the last cost, maybe the most expensive one, and you're going, I don't know if I want this unity. It's going to cost you your revenge. When you're commanded to forgive, when Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, 
to someone who's been truly sinned against, to someone who's been hurt, someone who may have really wronged you and maybe even in, a, in an abusive, abusive way, a command to forgive feels wrong. Like forgiveness to them feels like an injustice to the whole world. Forgiving them feels like we're just letting them get away with it and we're saying, it's okay, it's fine. Like we've just brushed it all under the rug and that the only way to get free from my pain is to cause hurt to those who've hurt me. This last one might be the death of you. And say, I can, I can, I can sacrifice the others, but I can't give that one up. And if that's the case, that's why I want to come to our third point, that a visible unity resurrects you. It will bring you back to life. This unity will bring you back to life. How? Because Jesus' love is displayed not just in words and thoughts. His love is displayed in deeds. Jesus has a visible unity himself to you and me. How? Jesus' love is displayed right here. And he doesn't just sit on his hands in heaven going, I hope things go well with them. No, God's word offers forgiveness with skin on. Jesus is, is a visible unity. Jesus sees our needs, he sees our helplessness, and he unites himself to you and I in such a way that brings about his death. Because unity is costly. And he could watch us and try to say, just you know, make it on your own. But Jesus steps in and he sacrifices his life for ours. And Jesus knows that, that that closeness and that intimacy that's almost about to happen will one day happen in verse 21, that all of them may be one. And he says, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. I want you to just pause on that verse right there. That they may be one just as. These two words have so much theology packed into them. The power of our unity has now just been likened to the union of the Father and the Son. So that my unity with you and you with me is to be of the same union as the Father is to the Son. <laughs> Woo! That's, that's tight. Like that, is, that to me seems radical and audacious that he would say this. This is a unity that, that not just merely reflects, but actually participates in the unity of God, in the love and obedience which binds the Son to the Father. Father. And so as united as, as the Father and Christ are is how united you and I are with one another. That is a powerful statement that Jesus says here. But things get even more bold. Jesus takes it to a step further that I cannot comprehend. In verse 23, we've looked at it a few times, but I've held off the very last part of it here. He says, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. There's two words that are just going to blow up this whole passage here. That even as, that God loves you, even as he loves his son Jesus. Like, do we get, do we get that, that how wild that is? Like, I don't know if we comprehend that. Even as, even as you have loved me. What it's saying is that God's love for his adopted children he loves them even as much as he loves his own son, Jesus. And so we believe that, that God the Father loves his son, Jesus. 
but do we believe that he loves me? We doubt that one all the time. And if we know that God the Father loves Jesus, and he says, you love them even as you've loved me, we're we're in a good position there. We're in a wonderful standing here, and it's just utterly radical to what the modern Christian actually believes here. If this unity is true, this is going to resurrect us to revisit all of those costs with a very new life in us. Like, if God loves us even as, then I want to be in community for your sake as well as for my sake. Like, I want to reorient how I use my money and my time and my gifts to benefit those around me. Like, I want to be part of a place that doesn't center me. If you and I share this faith together, then, then we share the Godhood inside of each other. And so if I, how can I say, with the Christ living in me, that I am now going to dismiss the Christ living in you? How can I do that to one another? How can I say that you are a threat or that you're competition with me? You have, the, you have that type of union in you, and we should have that type of union with one another. We have something deeper that unites us. And we're not talking about a unity of, uh, uh, to, to abusers and forcing a fake unity. Again, we're, we, we can't go there. And it's going to take some deep wisdom to discern where some people are. That's hard. But Romans 12, 18 says, If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you. I can forgive given how much Christ has forgiven me. If I can, and I know how bad I am, but he can say, I love you even as I love my son, then I can forgive. It's, forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things though, right? Like I can forgive someone, but to be reconciled, like the other party also has to want that reconciliation, also has to want that unity. And so that, that may take time. That may take time to materialize, but your growth and your healing doesn't have to wait on them. You can start that forgiveness now. That was what Christ has commanded of us. That, that, is, that is something that is offered to you today. And even as this, this visible unity empowers us to have a love bank so that we can be patient with people and so that we can call them out in love, right? That even as allows us to do that. Even as is the end of my bitterness. Even as if, if God can love me, even as he loves his son and I know what I've done, then how can I hold on to any grudge? Does it excuse what they did? No way. But I no longer have to demand justice for it. And so when God says, vengeance is mine, I can say, you take it. I don't have to demand it. I've been given that love. And the best picture of this type of unity that I can think of, I, I wish I could say is the church, and I hope and pray one day it will be, but I do think the best picture I can think of when I think of this unity is I think of uh, another altar that many people worship at, and that's at the football field. There, 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 there's a moment when, when you, the home team does something so unthinkable so, so, so incredible that it needs a visible sign to express the joy that you have bursting inside of you. And the only way to express that sign is in the action of storming the field. That's how you have to express this joy, right? And so in this moment, when you have all of these people storming the field, very different people that don't know one another, you have, you have black, white, you have Asian, you have Hispanic, you have those born into Republican families, you have those born in Democrat families, you have those born in America, those that are immigrants, you have all those storming the field. 
And, and those who didn't play the game, they're storming the field because of those who did play the game, won it for them. One for, for those who are wearing the same jersey. And there was a jubilee. There was a unity amongst them. I mean, just think about that. You've, you've maybe been a part of this before. Complete strangers high-fiving one another. Complete strangers hugging each other. We did it. <laughs> I don't know you. I may have a lot of beef with you. But in that moment, there is something greater that unites us than divides us. And there is jubilee. And, and when we get to heaven, there is going to be a jubilee. Not because some football team won, but because Christ won. Because Christ has won and you and I will have the same color robes on. And in that moment, there will be perfect unity. Complete. And we will be shouting, glory, hallelujah. The lamb has overcome. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, his name is faithful and true. Glory, hallelujah, the lamb has overcome. In that moment, we will be on the same team. That's where we're going, church. And what I pray that we would do is say what the Lord's Prayer is, that on earth as it is in heaven, that that type of unity would start breaking into this world right now. Because there is something far greater that unites us than what divides us here. And what, what unites us is the blood of the Lamb that the Lamb has won. And there is victory there. Oh, <laughs> I love it. May the world see the unity that, that's going to challenge you, that's going to cost you, and that will resurrect you. And may they see this love that we have for one and this unity and make them say, only God could do that. Praise the Lord, only God could do that. They believe that? I wonder what that is. Let's, let's, let's work towards that type of unity. Let me pray for us.